welcome everyone to the Pop Culture Podcast by Fantastic Geek. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everybody. Here today to talk Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, Pete, of course, on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we have already spoken in the past uh, about the previous four Indiana Jones films, which means you can go back and listen to it right now and actually be transported back, at least in spirit, to the time in which we recorded them. So you see, we were always headed towards the Dial of Destiny. We were. Speaking of Destiny, Matt, our Destiny each week, Saturdays, is your Marvel Secret Invasion. I uh, will bring you episode three, which hits Disney Plus tomorrow on Saturday, July 8th. And then, of course, uh, Star Trek Sunday will bring you Strange New Worlds episode four already of season two um, on uh, July 9th. And Pete, here we are in July before you know it, the Ahsoka series will be starting uh, towards the end of August, August 23rd. Don't want the sands of summer to run out of the timer quite yet, but uh, if we learned anything from the Dial of Destiny, time marches on. Uh, so, of course, we'll be doing some previews as we get closer to that date. Keeping it in the Disney Lucasfilm family, Matt, with the 2012 sale throw-in franchise... What's the box office on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny? So, though we are recording this on Tuesday, July the 4th, uh, currently the numbers that are in are for the three-day weekend. That, of course, includes Thursday previews, as always, because, you know, for Hollywood, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are three days. Um, uh, within these United States, $60 million. Internationally, $70 million for a total of one thirty. Uh, on the soft side for what one might have hoped when they greenlit this movie X number of years ago and all of that, uh, generally in line with the pre-box, you know, the pre-release tracking, I think that was looking at more like $65 million. To me, though, and I said this to you off mic a couple days ago, Pete, there's always these articles written when you have a four-day weekend, a five-day weekend, something that interrupts the normal three-day weekend. Uh, for for a movie theater going, there's always these articles that go, gasp, we had no idea that three days after Christmas, it's like a Saturday. And four days after Christmas, why, a lot of people are off work, and that's like a Saturday too. Similarly, with this July 4th weekend, knowing that a certain percentage of people in the United States were off on Monday, many more, most off today, I bet that when those numbers do come rolling in, look for the articles that go, oh my goodness, biggest Monday, Tuesday haul, post-COVID, you know, because I think people that are interested in seeing this movie might be going Monday or Tuesday or, and you know, perhaps it'll be a stronger midweek, post-holiday, whatever it might be. So, softer start, but I think um, behind the solid numbers are some good headwinds. They were forecast at $60 million what you're saying soft and hit 70 million. Okay. My question is, is this really a failure? Number one, um, it's not as if they needed to ensure an X chapter. They didn't need to do well enough so that we would get more Indiana Jones. You just 
talked about the headwinds, particularly for more. I wonder what kind of legs the film will have. I've yet to talk to more than one person who didn't like the film. Uh, and I think a lot of people, maybe based on, you know, the uh, review bombing that was happening and people with agendas trying to crash the film because there's a woman in it that they don't like, and it was produced by a woman that they don't like, um, trying to really affect the take. Uh, I, I think people based on positive word of mouth, perhaps might check it out in a delayed fashion. And to, to add on to your point, Pete, I mean, look in the Lucasfilm stable of properties, this uh, let's say you know post disney merger uh this movie was just waiting to be made like it's a logical thing let's make this movie from a dollars and cents point of view if this movie costs 250 to 300 million dollars uh and that's before advertising which let's throw in minimal uh, minimum another 100 million dollars so if you're 400 million dollars in the hole because you're disney okay this is not a great start flip side as you're saying pete there's the ability for the longer term viewing furthermore while I think there's maybe maybe baked into the the foundation or baked into the background, if one can do background baking, baked somewhere into this is, you know, is there the possibility of some kind of spinoff? I think it's there, but this is not the setup of a spinoff the way Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was. So if this is the last Indiana Jones movie because it did not make as much money as they thought or it did not make as much profit or it was minimally profitable or, or lost money or whatever it is, this still could be the end point whether this makes, again, let's say the $400 million in the hole. If this makes three fifty or 400 or 450 or 500 you know, short of, oh my goodness, the new... The the new beloved star uh, is Wombat. You know, short of that, this is probably the last Indiana Jones film slash TV show that there's going to be. And if so, I think my money. And oh, boohoo! If Disney loses some money, guess what? Uh, still have other things coming out. Robust theme park, good TV situation, Disney Plus. You know, all of that. So it's kind of an academic discussion, unless it's <laughs> unless it's actually your money on the line. I don't think there'll be more Indiana Jones. This film got made because Harrison Ford wanted it made 80 years young. Okay. And listen to commit to this. And I, I don't think you can look at it any other way. Clearly the most emotional Indiana Jones story of the five films, but James Mangold here, the only non-Steven Spielberg director to ever helm one of these, did a good enough job that it got him a Star Wars movie. Um, Yeah, I mean, James Mangold has quite a resume in genre stuff, some of the Wolverine films. Uh, he's got a great resume for non-genre stuff. Um, I believe Oscar nominee for uh, Ford versus Ferrari. So if he wanted to do this to have the fun of an Indiana Jones movie and all of that, you know, I think the proof is on the screen. It's not, it's not James Mangold's problem as to whether this movie is a big hit or not. Similarly, as you say, Pete, I feel like he clearly managed all the pieces here, nostalgia, new stuff, new characters, old characters, VFX, etc., action, all of that. Um, you know, there's, 
again, if this movie is a money loser or if this movie is not as profitable as was hoped, it's kind of weirdly not a it's not a negative on anybody's resume. It's part of it's it's now part of the Indiana Jones five movie set, whether that's digital or or uh, disc or whatever it might be. Yeah, I really don't think they're taking a loss on this. And again, that it was a labor of love for the star, the box office star of the millennium to get this done. Clearly the driving force behind it to the point where there is faux outrage over things like a movie not produced by Paramount, not having the Paramount in fade in. Matt, can you imagine? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, Paramount still retains distribution over the first four films. Paramount uh, has a, a an associate producer credit or, you know, pa- Paramount's making money off this movie if this movie makes money or, you know, whatever it is. Paramount is a partner in it. Fine. It doesn't have the Paramount mountain in the beginning. Okay. Changing, changing times, changing whatever. It's not a Paramount movie at the end of the day. I, I mean... Pete tying to the larger financial picture here, there might not be a Paramount in three, four years, uh, depending on where their financials go. Uh, ditto, look at you, Warner Brothers, probably a likely sale again in the next three or four years. So if nothing else, Pete, the stable Walt Disney Company got a fifth Indiana Jones movie made. Whether you loved it or didn't love it or whatever, I'll take a fifth one uh, made by Walt Disney with help from Paramount. I'll take that versus, well, you know, it's tied up in rights, so it's never going to get made. We start in 1944, this prologue with all the de-aging technology, not digital, Matt. They, much like the uh, re-speaker app they use for James Earl Jones, they now have a visual one where they fed all the footage of Harrison Ford that was not used from several projects and were able to put together this 25-minute prologue at Nuremberg Castle where Indy's on a previous but later simultaneously adventure uh, for the Lance of Longinus as the Nazis are under attack. Overall, it looks great. Uh, I think that they set the bar high for themselves, uh, not just in terms of it's a familiar face that we all know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, early on, when there is not just uh, indie under a harsh light, uh, but there's like the swinging light back and forth. They did not need to do swinging light. They could have done lower light, the, 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 uh, candle light. You know, things that were kinder to the eye. It was in that swinging light scene, maybe at its brightest. I was a little aware of the deep fake nature here, but overall, A, huge success. B, let's just keep things in context here. Just because you can tell a special effect that you know is not real, just because you can tell that it is not real, doesn't mean that it's a failure. I think that we we sometimes live through the mm-hmm. live through the uh, I, I don't want to put this the the once lived life of like and then i saw jurassic park for the first time in 1994 and the dinosaurs looked amazing and then this and then that versus you know go back to jurassic park it's very very good it's groundbreaking it changed hollywood there's stuff that's not 100% there um 
and you don't necessarily complain because you're like, look, there's there's dinosaurs, right? That was that, that never looked that good before. Same thing here. You know, we've talked about the long-term implications of deep fake technology and all of that. It's it's on display here for this huge chunk of time and it really, really works. Your brain does this thing where you know the actor is not this age, but to see him transformed for this adventure that's taking place earlier than the main narrative kind of goes through this, uh, wait, it's, it's not real, but I need to know it's not real at the same time. If I could just give myself over to that, I can appreciate it. Um, do you notice it? You do. Um, but it's successful for what it is and groundbreaking in the sense that it's not one scene. They're not just taking the uh, hood off his head and, oh, look, it's uh, Harrison Ford circa 1981. But, you know, this very long sequence and the amount of footage used, this is really going to be something that people point to years and years later. And I would also say, I think, cooked into the, the success. Yes, I was just critical of the harsh light on his face and how it didn't always look perfect. Coincidentally, Pete, this whole Nuremberg, this whole 1944 portion, not just at Nuremberg, when we end up on the train and all of that, it's all taking place when? At night. Mm -hmm. So at any time you need more. So, again, I'm sure it was, hey, the first shot the deep fake team needs to work on is this swinging light thing and so on and so forth. If parts of it don't look as good, guess what? That's when you're like, and then it was even more dark over there for the three seconds where we just can't lick the angle that was shot or whatever it might be. So, you know, they lean, I'm almost thinking, Pete, of the, the first Lord of the Rings film where they consciously spend the first half hour going, here's one trick, here's another trick, here's another trick. How do we, can, can you keep track of the Hobbit stuff? And you're meant to tie yourself out and after a half hour go, the hobbits are small and the normal people are big. That's just a fact. I'm not playing the game anymore of trying to trying to hack the movie. I think this movie does that as well. I think of this hanging set piece, one of many that was just delightful to watch, delightful in how it was created as an action uh, set piece, uh, as an action moment here, and one that it was very easy to suspend your disbelief and say, I think Indiana Jones is going to die right here, right now. There's no way out. Uh, again, you don't, <laughs> you don't really believe that, but within the moment, you're like, he's going to die. It feels like it fits in the previous adventures, the tone of it. Uh, on top of having the thing he's looking for leading to the, the film's actual MacGuffin in the Dial of Destiny, Archimedes Dial, the Antikythera, whatever we want to refer to it as, that we're told can detect fissures in time. Um, you know, there were people that drew the line, that might be one of them, aliens in the previous installment. Um, Pete, Pete, hold on. You call them aliens. They were not aliens. They were creatures from <laughs> yeah, another dimension. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. I was just generalizing. There were people similarly so that they may have balked at the aliens too. Funny how they were still back for this adventure. 
but also, uh, hey, no, we don't do time travel. Um, yeah, supernatural, okay. Um, was an extraterrestrial, as you explained. And now the idea that the Antikythera could predict weather, could predict patterns. So why not the idea of time fissures? First of all, I think that in my kind of hazy spoiler knowledge of this film, I did not. How about this way? I suspected there would be time travel. I did not know that until going until the the film started to kind of set its own course. Um, And I would say in this early part of the movie, we don't need to believe in time travel in the beginning. It's here we are again for a fourth Indiana Jones film, fourth of the five, where the Nazis believe that there is the power here. And whether the power is real or not, you know, weirdly, it has been in the other films and then even including temple of doom you know the the colloquial magic is actually real um but again i think that as we're settling into this adventure here the fact that it's the nazis that are again trying to mine this stuff also i should add based on this real world war ii era thing where nazis were uh, you know investigating the occult for uh for an advantage and all of that it, it kind of adds to it adds to our believability if you are uh, suspicious of time travel. Again, we don't need to believe in the beginning. You know, Dr. Jürgen Waller, he's the one who believes in it, and that's good enough for the first third of the movie. We have the introduction of Indy's pal, Basil Shaw, and this loot train sequence that you mentioned, uh, the bad doctor here. Um, and the idea of time travel, Matt, I'm, I'm watching you know, mid-1980s Harrison Ford, time travel is happening. <laughs> oh, in terms of our ability to go back in time with a new old... Uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, it's it's a great introduction here for Basil Shaw. I was worried that his importance in the story would be limited just to this section and certainly some of the fake-outs of his, you know, is he going to die and so on and so forth. Um, had me worried that we were going to be saying an early goodbye to another kind of sidekick fellow. I mean, I know we kind of had had one from Ray, Ray um, is it Wallstone? Uh, any, anyhow, in, in um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, uh, I like that we get him doing everything he needs to do story-wise here, and it's the Indy's good friend who we, the audience, have never heard of, but there's, you know, there's a good friendship there, and it's actually because of the strength here in the first act of the movie, when he reappears in flashback later on, it's only strengthening things. So the body of the narrative taking place in July, 1969, we start in New York city where Indy has fallen on hard times, close up of separation agreement with Marion, who he married at the end of the last movie. He did pretty early on um uh, beat i wish no harm to any person in the real world but look the inclusion of mutt the use of mutt in the last film particularly the way the last film you know says 
in, in all but text on screen says Mutt Jones will return in the new adv- the, the new adventures of Mutt Jones coming soon. Um, something that people did not want. Um, the fact that here we learn that separation uh has been uh you know a major factor on it has been the death of mutt the death of their son uh i think that's that's a story win for this movie and retroactively it's a story win for how i felt at the end of the last movie so with indy wiping noses at hunter college where incidentally matt my mom attended some classes (laughs) um to to further this idea that he's just kind of going through the motions at this point, clearly depressed over uh, the separation with his wife, the death of his son. Okay. Uh, To inject goddaughter Helena Wombat Shaw in Phoebe Waller bridge into the story at this point, who shows up looking for the dial that her father had found half of, Uh, back in the flashback. I kind of have slowly become aware that sometimes when people complain, let's say about some of the, the, um, the remake, the sequel, when our heroes of yesteryear have returned in the last 10 or 15 years, whether it's the star Wars films, whether it's this, obviously Indiana Jones, or obviously Harrison Ford, a common point between the two, where, for some people, Pete, maybe people slightly older than us, I don't know, the notion of like, oh man, how dare you say that Indiana Jones wasn't chestnut-haired and vital his entire life and that he could be sad about things or maybe not have enough energy to professorize all the time and to actually retire. So bottom line, Pete, being there are people who I think don't like it when characters age and stop being early 30s vital. And that's not how to view this film. I mean, he's clearly doing amazing heroic things. But can we have as a starting point that characters age just as we all do? The whole premise, the theme of the film are your days passing you by and making the most of them um yeah some people it it just eludes them so much kind of the way that voller eludes detection here under an alias helping nasa to the moon um all lining up with this ticker tape uh celebration that's going to take place in new york in July of 1969, having uh, gone to the moon, our, our pioneers, Matt, who needs archaeologists anymore? Uh, which I think is a good, I mean, surely those were the, the discussions going on in the 60s, right? Enough looking to the past. It's all the future. We're going to be living on the moon by 1980 and Mars by the year 2000 and all of that kind of space race optimism. Um I'll just mention, though not named in the film, you know, it is a real thing. Operation Paperclip, which you might recognize from the Captain America films, was a real thing where, you know, the winning countries of World War II kind of divvied up German rocket scientists and uh, gave them safe haven. Nazi, what? War crimes, what? Nope. Come do math for us to help us, you know, advance 
rocket technology, space race, uh, aviation, etc. Um, uh, Pete, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what larger commentary there is there, particularly on this Fourth of July. But uh, indeed, Voller helping us get to the moon, but still, Pete, if you can believe it, still a secret Nazi. Yeah, and with uh, his associates murdering several people, colleagues, ex-colleagues, as he's retired here, Indy, uh, at Hunter College, framed for murder. I like that we get some nuance out of Voller's colleagues here um, in that, you know, the, the two guys are very eager to kind of, well, not even too kind of, they're very eager to be killing uh, to clear a path that tempered by the Seanette Renee Wilson character, Mason, who, who I guess Pete were meant to assume is CIA. That's sort of, you know, yeah, officially looped into the government. Again, I appreciate that there's nuance there. Um, could you do the story without it? Sure. It's just a more interesting thing to have someone say, no, don't shoot the secretary. Oh, look, now the secretary is dead. Um, it, it adds to the flavor and the spice of the piece. It does. And like you said, draw enough from history that we buy it, uh, as well as the idea that the CIA implanted African-Americans for, you know, investigations into the Black Panthers and all that, all of it culminating in this chase first through the streets of New York, through the lens of Glasgow, uh, then into the subways, which seems appropriate for the setting and the age of our character. We were never going to drag him, Matt, realistically so, underneath a truck or have him sever a rope bridge or have him hang off a tank in this film. It needed to be things that we buy uh 80 year old now Harrison Ford doing um yeah and and again I think if there is some sort of subconscious complaint uh you know they're not having him do the things he used to do I mean it's what are the things you're complaining about that you're not putting Harrison Ford through those things because as you said Pete he's older ditto for Dr. Jones he's older as well clearly they've created a script and created stunt sequences here where um you can put harrison ford on a horse or you can do as i saw on social media over the weekend you can do a very solid uh face cast of him do it in latex and put it on a stunt man and then paint on uh some five o'clock shadow there and put a wig on like you know these are all solutions because this is all pretend and doesn't need to be a commentary on your childhood just because you enjoyed him being younger in your childhood. Having escaped from the pursuers here, we catch up with uh, John Reese davies Sala. Great to see him back in a role that was bigger than I imagined it was going to be. Um, the revelation that his extended family all immigrated with Indy's help is you know, a, a really great idea that they've maintained this lifelong friendship and brought him over uh, to America. And then uh, he's a cabbie now, so it helps move the story forward. It, it drives him uh, literally 
to the airport where uh, he uses his cab uh, to help Indy out, send him overseas after Helena. Sala's one or two scenes here and his presence in the final scene, uh, as you said, Pete, more than I also expected. I would also say I think it is the right amount in that times have changed a bit and maybe having uh, a Welshman put on an accent and wear what to us is a funny hat. Maybe that has maybe nowadays such a decision would not be made with a brand new character or such a casting choice and so forth. So you bring back the character. There's no claim here that it is too much of him. Um, and therefore it not being too little, it being more than we thought, uh, by, by logic, it is the right amount. So in Tangier, Matt, we get this auction revealed that, uh, Helena is not the idealistic, uh, you know, uh, archeologist, but rather she is doing this for capitalism, trying to auction off the, uh, a part of the dial that she has. Uh, Voller is there, of course. And the introduction of her sidekick, uh, Teddy Kumar, that uh, culminates in this comedic tuk-tuk chase along with uh, Helena's ex-fiance, a Moroccan uh, mafia figure. Again, unlike Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I think that the inclusion here of of the new the new young person, the inclusion here of uh, of Helena, it does not feel like they are setting the table for the next trilogy, the next phase of this property, and all of that. Uh, much like other characters, male and female, she feel uh, from prior films, she feels fully integrated into the story. Um, and that tuk-tuk chase, that extended tuk-tuk chase is absolutely wonderful. You and I have seen many films together. It's rare for me to be, you know, kind of in my seat gasping and, oh, watch out, and kind of things of that yeah, sort. Yeah, when they hit the spikes, I noticed how much you you physically react. <laughs> yeah, like this is a good, this is a very, very good, again, lengthy chase scene um it's well thought out the the fact that you have comedic moments and um kind of that classic indiana jones like you see the thing is coming and pull out of the way you know the, all of that it's 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 really phenomenal um it advances the story it advance you know we, we have the the two pressures here as you said from the ex-fiance as they are chasing voler it's just a a really wonderful action set piece and i think a little it's a reminder too the Indiana Jones property was always conceived to be a step away, you know, an opportunity for George Lucas and to a lesser degree Spielberg, who, you know, as we discussed in the uh, the Raiders podcast, Spielberg, Spielberg was coming off some missteps and like needed a financial hit to prove that he had the goods to continue to direct at a high level. But Spielberg, after all the, dis or pardon me, Lucas, after all the discussion of, you know, man with a hero with a thousand faces, and this is reinterpreting, you know, the serials from the 40s and 50s, and the eternal thing that since caveman times, and both of them said, can we just make a movie that's fun? Yeah, it's gonna be expensive. Yeah, it's gonna be razzle dazzle, but a fun, a good old fun movie, a good old fun time at the movies. And that it's not meant to be this kind of uber commentary to life and so forth and we get that in this chase where it's a ton of fun at the movies 
it is they get away of course uh the uh nazi and his associates and what do you know matt turn on one of their own and kill uh mason yeah which among other things narratively what does that say to us they've gone from leaning bad to now worse you know the one voice of reason which is we're gonna have to you know we're gonna have to break some eggs to make the omelet here but maybe not the secretary maybe not you know the 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 professor friend um now she's gone with um the story takes us to greece where we meet antonio banderas's ronaldo spain's greatest frogman um which also sets up another really fun action set piece here um i I don't want to go completely out of order i was surprised by how little antonio banderas was in the film relative build yeah um which good for him there um i don't know if that's the b in banderas or if that's like the you know if you want antonio banderas he must be third build um but Again, kind of this, you know, setting up the next action set piece here, the the really, I think we had already been, it already had been told to us through flashback through like, let's look at the legend and the old papers, and the old reports and all of that. The notion that the uh, part of the dial um, apparatus uh, had sunk on the ship. Okay, got it. Now it's been recovered. But wait, there's now more ship and it's even deeper and it's even worse and all of that. It's just a really great, I mean, again, it's in line with the other Indiana Jones adventures here where, you know, you think you've heard of a crashed ship at 70 feet. How about one at 200 feet? And something we've never seen Indiana Jones do, this idea of, of diving and of an underwater portion to the adventure. And, you know, so Teddy can't go all right, how do you ratchet up the the drama there? Because clearly it's not Harrison Ford uh, in the wetsuit. Oh, wait, what do eels look like? They look like snakes? No, they don't. You know, it, it's not only uh, novel, it's, it's funny. Add to it, like, again, I would completely agree. It's almost certainly not Harrison Ford in a wetsuit for 99% of this. The fact that they have set this in a setting, you know, it's very silty water. So to whatever degree you might be doing dry for wet and then you're putting in silt and bubbles, maybe that's how you get some Harrison Ford shots in there. To whatever degree you have him wearing his costume shirt and uh, and and the, the mask apparatus and you're in five feet of water in a pool or something like that to steal some other shots, you know, again... Again, in the DNA of Indiana Jones is let's come up with a cool thing and then have a story kind of naturally lead to the fun thing that we want to do. Similarly here, they want to do the diving thing. There's some logistical concerns on how to do it with Harrison Ford. So you come up with a setting that leans into, well, I can't quite see his face with the bubbles and the silt and the and the eel in that shot because that might have been a 45-year-old stuntman. They do the dirty work that uh, Voller and his goons can't. They get this Graphicos tablet. There's the requisite, well, wait, it's really something else underneath it. Do the archaeology and, and melt the, 
the thing to reveal the the real location um but what the trickery of the story leads to is the real emotional backbone of well mutt enlisted uh he died uh if i could change time what would i do i'd go back and tell him not to do it um and this notion of changing time um it's not the first instance where some sort of time vague time issue has been mentioned it might have been during the tuk tuk chase but earlier on references made to indy wearing his father's watch which of course we'll return to in a little bit but it's kind of again as the as the third act is slowly being uh not, i don't want to say worked on but as it's being foretold here with mutt's fate go back in time to change time as we're getting more and more of the dial apparatus happening and the clues and the location and all of that um the fact that we're gonna have some wristwatch action as we get deeper into the story it, it's all working towards uh you know upon first view this conclusion that we don't that we don't know how it's gonna resolve itself so they wind up in sicily here headed to the ear of dionysus and another staple of this series is to get the the gross out moment you know if it's not uh the gore of uh raiders of lost ark or the the bugs of um temple of doom here we have uh the millipede sequence which i i think is just believable and different enough from the others that we really buy it <laughs> certainly i think that the memo went out from you know uh i don't know indiana jones hq whatever that looks like you know lucasfilm whatever like hey too many bugs and we're gonna how who knows we could end up with the whole rating thing uh pete i closed my eyes a little bit for the bug thing and it happened i i guess actually in retrospect it was about as long as the one in temple of doom maybe it was this one was a bit quicker but you know they kept it moving and as you said you know they've done this sort of thing before and we're the collective we we're meant to be a little uncomfortable in an indiana jones movie whether it's the guy's face melting in the first one or fast aging in the third one or the, <laughs> the the many scary things in the second one uh or uh you know shia labeouf in the fourth one we're meant to be a little uncomfortable at times really enjoyed the set decoration in this sequence the the touristy type of you know bridge over the the gushing water yet enough to believe that you know the the scaling of this and you know uh indy taking uh helena through this is really happening um you know him asking her well hey how did you uh wind up with teddy um i i think it's the only regret i have about this film it was a missed opportunity to shout out short round to say you know hey i had a sidekick once and uh you know i'll talk about it towards the end of the podcast here if this series is going to continue in spirit 
It's short round. It's Kehu Kwan that really ought to get the shot. I know that, uh, again, in this portion here, it, it is fun. I think if you kind of need to maybe don't ask questions like, how long has that rope and wood bridge been there? And is the answer 2000 years? And at what point does stuff in a wet environment start to rot? Like that's, if you're going to play that game, then you also need to be like, yeah, those like the whole big stone ball trap thing at the beginning of the first one, like that shouldn't work either after hundreds of years uh, and so forth. I will point out Pete that that rope bridge falls apart completely when big giant German guy takes Teddy through uh, and then later on, when people are escaping, what appears to be the same bridge is now back again. But hey, continuity, whatever. Um, we do eventually get to the tomb of Archimedes with uh, some of the big takeaways here: propellers and airplane-like elements on his uh, on on his uh, stone entablature there, and then the wristwatch on him. And that's when I said, "Oh my goodness, we already have mentioned." Um, Indy's father's wristwatch that Indy wears and that's when I got thinking you know is this Indy in the thing so on and so forth and and kind of wondering what the end game was going to be I'll also mention Pete though I then spent maybe the next 10 minutes saying are they going to kill Indy at the end are they going to kill Indy I then reminded myself oh wait in the TV show though there was old Indy so no they're not going to do that because even though it's not beloved that's canonical then Pete before the very end of the movie, before Indy's fate was truly resolved, then I remembered in the re-edit of the Young Indiana Jones Adventures, now called whatever the more complicating title is, they actually <laughs> edited out old Indy, which yes, is to say... Yeah, they took away the eye patch yeah. wearing Indy. So, yeah, I mean, you, you do question what is going to happen. Um, morons in the fall, Matt... Uh, started convincing other morons that um, Indiana Jones was both going to be killed off and then subsequently replaced, uh, neither of which happened. That was the whole false, oh, they're reshooting the end of the movie because it's always test audiences don't like this. Uh, not actually, um, you know, other people who could make decisions. Uh, But clearly that, like everything else, they spout false. Really enjoy this snake eats tail, T-A-L-E, Matt, of just the cyclical, well, wait, he's got the wristwatch on and the propellers on the iconography, but then they go to the past and they present that there. So it's all wrapped up into the story. It is. And along the way, uh, India is captured by Voller and company. Uh, the, the, the interesting notion here that Voller wants to assassinate Hitler, that Voller has determined that the problem with Nazi Germany was kind of Hitler I'll say with big quotes here and and no sense of being disrespectful to you know that time period and all that but Voller's idea that Hitler kind of was too Hitlery and if only he hadn't gone quite so 
so above and beyond or extra or whatever it is that perhaps uh, Nazi Germany could have um, could have persisted, if not kind of led out of existence by Hitler, um, which, if nothing else, was contrary to my expectation that like, I mean, Hitler's Hitler and Nazis, Nazis and Hitler, one, <laughs> I think. Uh, quite rightfully associates the two very closely and the fact that Voller had a different take revol- uh, involving Hitler in World War II um, if nothing else was a surprising story turn a different take too that he thinks he's going to wind up in 1939 but as Indy can easily surmise uh, no your your math is off <laughs> your lack of attention to detail okay continental drift and they wind up in the battle of syracuse much discussed earlier in the film in 212 bc Uh, and the way that's introduced is really nicely done because you're seeing kind of from from high up in the air you're seeing the invading uh navy and you're seeing some sort of artillery fire and things of that sort until the reveal until until they go lower until it's uh, officially settled wait you know those are not 1940s boats and missiles and rockets and so forth these are you know uh roman boats and uh technology of 2000 years ago the the great use of the uh you know the giant arrows that are spearing baddies and pulling apart the plane and and all of that um and then the notion too that <laughs> the notion that we've had Teddy uh, trailing behind in a plane just big enough for I don't know maybe because obviously it's Teddy and the plane's proper pilot the plane's owner and there's maybe room for like two more people. Um, it is your it's your Deus ex machina, but it at at no point do you complain because Teddy's been helping Helena the entire time, so of course Teddy's gonna steal a plane and trail after the first one, you know, and, and all of that. Um, I will say that as the battle is wrapping up and as it's revealed that Archimedes had always created the dial to be this closed loop, to bring back someone to him. Um, again, that was kind of unexpected and with Indy saying he wants to die here, he wants to, you know, he studied the past this whole time. He now gets to live out his years in it and so forth. I think a, I bought it as a possibility. B, the amount of time spent with him saying no, but I really want to, and kind of the they pull out the drama for just long enough that I think everybody buys it, and then it's kind of the ultimate, you know, editing solution. You know, knuckle sandwich, cut to black, and by the time he wakes up, problem solved. Um, it's the magic of editing, and it's the roundness of his journey now that he saw history, he studied history, but this is not the place that he needs to be because he's going to further alter it. And there's more story for him back at home. You've you've got to get together with Marion, with Karen Allen in the epilogue, Matt, because her name is on the posters. Uh, I'm glad I did not see the posters now, as mentioned on um, one podcast or another we've done in the last month. The fact that Karen Allen showed up at the red carpet, that's when I was like, oh, wait a minute. I bet Marion is in the movie. And of course, we've had a lot of fun on our Secret Invasion podcast saying 
well, just because somebody's in the red carpet doesn't mean they're part of it. And just because they're not in the red carpet doesn't mean they're not part of it, a la Chloe Bennett and will she show up in Secret Invasion and all of that. But uh, Pete, I was glad that uh, I'm glad that I'm only finding out now that her name was on the poster because that would have been a, a slam dunk where I still had a little little question mark in my mind and my heart. This epilogue here, I think it's the appropriate level of sweet but satisfying to have her there. The the groceries, Indy's recuperating. Sala is back here. And, you know, the, the callbacks, particularly to the original adventure, their interaction on the boat now reversed, okay, with the famous where does it hurt scene. And then uh, to, to lighten the mood there with Sala singing, um, you know, as he did in Raiders. I would have been okay if this scene in the apartment lasted just a little bit longer. You know, perhaps the opportunity for Sala to put an arm on either shoulder. And we can have this moment of saying, look, it's the three of them there. Probably something like that was scripted and regardless probably somebody the editor the director rightfully said uh, we don't necessarily need like the trading card moment of the three friends reunited or something like that we need to kind of keep the pace moving to wrap up this movie here um and we get the we get the happy ending we get our uh our lesser characters all due respect to helena uh and sala etc have them going outside and then them continuing with their lives. I love that there's kind of, there's obviously the happy ending for Indy and Marion, um, but it's a really great choice to to show the hat hanging out there. Then the hat is pulled back. Is it for one more adventure? Is it because life continues? Is it because though this story is over, Indy can continue on in our hearts? I think it might be all of the above. I think it's, the right choice there to iris in on that that there there could be more even though i think we're all pretty sure there won't be this is the place to at least leave this character you have a film that unlike kingdom of the crystal skull calls back to all the previous ones in the series uh, love the shout out to Temple of Doom there specifically, you know, drinking the blood of Kali and then all the stuff with Indy's father, um, you know, not an overload, but enough to say, hey, all these things before we'll reference them again, the idea of roundness of this experience. So obviously uh, the jury's still out as to whether. Uh, there is a continuation of this property or it stops at uh, the TV property being what it is and stops at five films. But I know, Pete, you you are keen to make a plea for one continuation. I think we got to return to Shorty. You know, somebody floated that maybe when uh, Indy responded to Helena about um, Teddy that oh hey i had one of those once and he's a professor now in this university or whatever um between kehi kwan's resurgence as an actor winning best supporting actor for everything everywhere all at once or just 
the beloved nature of the character. I really think if if they're not developing uh, this, I mean, obviously during a writer's strike that that can't be done. Um, it, it needs to be done. This is really crying out for a you know revisitation. Um, and if it is the end for uh, Indiana Jones, it's a way to make it fresh enough. Nobody wants to see. That's why the whole, well, Chris Pratt will take over the mantle and, you know, all that is not something people were going to get behind. Um, but I think with Shorty, it's it's not, you know, the baton pass of, well, here's the hat and here's the whip and the leather jacket and everything like that. Um, and like I said, it, it becomes more of a spiritual successor you could hear from shorty about indy um yet at the same time not make it all about indy by the way pete just as we've been recording uh some updated box office numbers here the estimate for five days being 82 million dollars so again oh wow went up there hmm yeah um so that's what another 22 million dollars on between the Wednesday and, and the Tuesday, uh, pardon me, between the Monday and the Tuesday. So we'll see what the future brings there. Uh, as for uh, other thoughts on the film, Pete, we had a post on Twitter, a poll on Twitter. Uh, did people give it uh, one clock? More like Crystal Dull. That got 5.9%. Did they give it two clocks? A Blast Crusade, 11.8%. Did they give it three clocks? Temple of Boom. 35.3%. And then uh, the top spot there, four clocks. This film is the arc, 47.1%. Uh, amongst the replies, Pete, uh, Noel Gardner at Noel Camille. I was thankfully surprised. I truly enjoyed this film. There were some scenes that were a tad long, but overall it was great. I appreciate that they dealt uh, with but didn't dwell on the prior film. Right now it's my third ranking behind Raiders and Crusade. Uh, and lastly, Pete, for, uh, hearing from Bob Keeley, that's at R. Keeley on Twitter. I loved it. I had more fun at this movie than I have in a theater for a while. The pacing was just right and kept me glued to my seat the whole time. Just enough callbacks to earlier movies to make it part of the timeline, but not so many that I felt like I needed to study. Uh, so some positive reactions there from uh, both commenters and uh, those who voted in the poll. Couldn't agree more. Uh, some commentary on us, Matt, a review left to the pop culture podcast by Fantastic Geek by uh, this looks like uh, Bernice dot RN. So maybe Bernice and they spell it a little differently, uh, but it reads uh, five stars uh, and the uh, hand heart emoji, Matt, you know, when you can make a heart with your hands uh the headline is uh that and you guys and it reads always listening to this podcast in reference to the series i'm watching the podcast length of time is just right goldilocks style not too long not too short but just right well thank you for those kind words there and uh particularly pete i think that you know we've we've developed the format that we have 
uh, A, it works for our listeners, B, it works for us, but it's always great to know that we are spending enough time, uh, and I'm going to take that, uh, I'm going to take that Goldilocks comparison, uh, which can warm my heart, not too much, not too little, just the right amount. Speaking of just the right amount, Matt, get yourself over to patreon.com slash fantastic geek, and you can pick just the right amount that you choose to uh, put towards, contribute towards our podcast endeavor. Uh, 100% listener funded. That's not, that's why you're not listening to commercials about manscaping and <laughs> meal kits, etc. cetera. Um, takes just a dollar a month to get you in that door. Can't contribute. You can be like Brenace, uh, dot RN and go to any of our 34 podcast feeds and leave us a rating or a review which helps move that algorithm and push us out to new listeners. Indeed. Our thanks to all who keep us listener supported and Pete, let's keep the podcast conversation going. How can people be in touch with you as they maybe see dial of destiny later than the first five days, as they enjoy the MCU offerings, the star Wars offerings, the star Trek offerings, etc. While Twitter exists, Matt, you can find me at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 12,765 followers for now. While I'm personally on Twitter's Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with us on the podcast. Check us out on FantasticGeek.com, Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are FantasticGeekGmail.com. But wait, Pete, there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek with a ph all one word like it today pete as you mentioned at the top we are back on secret invasion saturday to talk about that show and star trek sunday to talk about strange new worlds with that i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word you want to stop for a little lie down <laughs> <laughs>